All right, let's turn to uh, Daniel chapter 8, if you will. Daniel chapter 8. Moving right along in the book of Daniel now. But as is the case, as we get into a new chapter, comes a little bit more of a uh, instruction on the, histor- the historical parts of, of, of this uh, of the book, and uh, in this particular case, the historical parts of Daniel chapter 8. Now, in the first six chapters of the book of Daniel, we, we saw a lot of spiritual issues that uh, would be things that we need to apply to our lives. Uh, the dedication that uh, uh, Daniel and his three uh, Hebrew friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that was their Babylonian names, but what they went through uh, in their time of captivity in Babylon, uh, then of course what uh, we learned from, from Daniel, you know, the, the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace with Nebuchadnezzar, later on Daniel uh, not bowing down to, uh, you know, the... Uh, uh, to the uh, desires of the government of Darius. And uh, so they threw him in a lion's den. But, of course, he survived. All of those things are very important to us on a spiritual level. But chapter 2 was a very prophetic chapter. And once we arrived in chapter 7 a few weeks ago, from here on there's a lot more that deals with the issue of prophecy. So we're spending that time, we spend some of that time looking at the vision that God gave to Daniel in chapter 7 that coincided with Nebuchadnezzar's uh, visions and dreams in chapter 2. And uh, so they they coincided uh, hand in hand, as it were, even though Nebuchadnezzar saw these kingdoms that were to come from from man's perspective, Daniel saw them from God's perspective. Whereas Daniel saw these visions of these nations, starting with Babylon, his own. Babylon was the gold part of the head of the, this large statue. Uh, the chest of silver was uh, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire. The uh, uh, midsection uh, was uh, bronze was uh, Greece or Macedonia. And then the legs and the feet were the Roman Empire. Daniel saw it as as beasts. He saw them the way God sees them, as, as, as vile beasts. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the Babylonian uh, beast was the, uh, the lion with the, with the eagle's wings, and then the, uh, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire was the bear standing on one side. Uh, the Grecian Empire was the uh, leopard with four heads and, and so on, and the horns. And uh, or I should say the wings, and then the uh, beast, the un, unnamed kind of beast for the Roman Empire. So all of that uh, is where we've been, and now we arrive at Daniel chapter 8. Now when we start in Daniel chapter 7, we were told that the dreams that Daniel received, we, we took a step back in chronology, and we went back to the time of Belshazzar, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. So it was while Babylon was still the, the ruling kingdom, over the Jews that were in captivity, uh, it wasn't going to be for too much longer because uh, it was in the first year of Belshazzar's reign that Daniel received the 
the, uh, the visions there in chapter 7. We get now to chapter 8 and notice something uh, else. And we're given another time frame. In verse 1 it says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. So now two years have gone by. And it says, in the, third reign of the reign, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me, Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. So Daniel is making sure that everybody knows that this is Daniel that's, that's writing. And by the way, we've gotten back to the Hebrew writing, now in, no longer in Aramaic. I'll explain that in a moment. So he lets everybody know he's, he's Daniel writing this. And uh, a vision appeared unto him after the, uh, the, the vision of chapter 7, okay? Uh, and I saw in a vision, he says in verse 2, And it came to pass when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in a vision, and I was by the river of Ulai. I'll explain these names in a moment, because they are very, very crucial and important to our study of Daniel chapter 8. Verse 3 says, Then I lifted up mine eyes, and I saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram, which had two horns. Now he sees a vision of another animal, but now it's, it's more of a, not so weird of an animal in the sense of what we had seen in his previous dream. He said, here he stood, uh, there was a river, and by the river, the Ulai River, uh, a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. And again, we'll explain that. I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward. So somehow this ram is, uh, is an indication that uh, we're dealing with a symbol of a nation so that no beast might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering... Behold, a he-goat, in other words, a male goat, came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground. So, I mean, this was a flying goat and moving fast. The the idea is that this was a a very fast-moving animal and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river and ran into him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with collar against him. Now that word collar, that's an old ancient English word. Uh, You know, this is King James. So uh, that means he came with him with a very bitter and infuriating rage. That's what that word means a bitter and infuriating rage against the ram, and smote the ram, and brake his two horns, and there was no power in the ram to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground, and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. And therefore the he-goat waxed very great, and he became great. And when he was strong, the great horn was broken." the horn that was in the middle of his head. And for it came up four notable ones toward the winds of heaven. In other words, four more horns came out uh, unto the four winds of heaven. Again, we will come back to try to understand all of that in our text. Uh, 
So, in starting our study of Daniel chapter 8, I want to remind you of the structure now of the whole book of Daniel. I talked a little bit about it already, but I'm going to talk about the structure of Daniel. And you need to remember that it was written originally in two languages. The book of Daniel was written in two languages. Chapter 1 all the way to chapter 2 verse 3 was written in Hebrew. Then from chapter 2 verse 4 to the end of chapter 7, the language employed was Chaldean or is Chaldean or Aramaic. The language of the Babylonians. As a matter of fact, that language would would remain and come back to us later in the time of Jesus because most of what they spoke in a common language in the area of Israel was Aramaic. That was a very common language. So both languages then were used in the book of Daniel. Now from chapter 8 to the end of the book, Hebrew is once again used. So here in chapter 8 we, we begin now looking at a passage that's written in Hebrew. There's a very simple and yet significant reason for all of this. The first section was written in Hebrew to encourage and help all the faithful among the scattered Jewish people. In other words, it was a, it was a word to the, to the Jewish people in their language about Daniel and his dedication unto the Lord. It was, a, it was an encouragement to them. They were being scattered out of, out of Israel. Of course, later on, they would go through all of this again. In the second section that begins in chapter 2, verse 4, which was written in Aramaic, the Lord was tracing out the course of the times of the Gentiles. What do we find in chapter 2? But that was the dream and vision of Nebuchadnezzar. And it was about the nations. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and the Roman Empire, which they knew nothing about the Roman Empire, of course. Uh, They knew about the Medo-Persians because they were enemies. The Greeks were around, but they weren't a power as of yet. So they were no threat. Rome was not even in their minds. So there was a prophetic issue with these nations that came to Nebuchadnezzar. Again, written for the sake of the Chaldean people or the Babylonians. Because, again, the Lord was tracing out the course of the times of the Gentiles. Daniel was led by the Spirit of God to write it in the popular language of the day so that the, uh, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, or the Aramaeans would read it and gain understanding from it. So it was for them. It was for the Gentiles. As well as... The, the Jewish people. Now, the portion of the book which we are venturing into today, uh, beginning with this eighth chapter and continuing to the very end of the book, concerns the Jewish people in a very, very special way. So, again, it is written in Hebrew. Now, it is significant to note and to understand that the Lord has nothing to say about the course of the church in our time frame or in this particular dispensation, as it is called either in Daniel or, in any, or anywhere else in the prophetic literature of the Hebrew Scriptures. Now you might say, that's kind of a bold statement to make. But again, I want you to listen to what I said. 
the Lord has nothing to say about the course of the church in our time frame where we are today, or the church age as it were, either in Daniel or anywhere else in the prophetic literature of the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, as I said, you might think that's a bold statement, but understand that the Lord is giving us the truth regarding both Judah and Israel and to the Gentiles as such. The Gentiles being the nations. I'm not talking about the church. Now, here's why, why this is so important, because the confusion that comes from regarding replacement theology. Now, you remember a, a few a couple of months ago, we had very special guests here, uh, Daniel Kalik, who spoke on this issue of replacement theology, where people today in the church are saying that Israel is no longer uh, the apple of God's eye, and so the church has replaced Israel in, in the, well, in the good blessings. We don't replace Israel in the bad blessings, which I tell you, if we're going to replace Israel, we might as well replace Israel in all the blessings, right? And all the curses too. So you can't, you can't make this up. I mean, you can't just say, well, we want, we want the blessings, but we don't want the curses. So, see, that already doesn't make any sense. But the confusion regarding replacement theology today is good reason to heed this warning that I'm giving you about the church not being mentioned here in the book of Daniel. Because if we fail to observe these things, our apprehension of Scripture will be in misunderstanding. I don't want you to misunderstand what's going on in Scripture. You see, the principle is very simple. When we read of Judah or Zion or Jerusalem in the books of prophecy, we are not to suppose that the church is meant... The last time I checked, Judah means Judah. Zion means Zion. Jerusalem means Jerusalem. And Israel means Israel. And the Gentiles have no part in what is written concerning these. Now, the church, which we are to know is the body of Christ, is something much different. And so we have to realize and remember that there are three, not two classes. There are three classes of people in the world today. Now even we in the church have this, this misunderstanding that there are only two classes. There's Jews and Gentiles. No. The scriptures are very clear. There are Jews, the Jewish people. There are Gentiles, the nations that are not in Israel, or a part of Israel, and the church. We are distinct once we come to Christ. Have we, read, have we not read in the Scriptures, in the, in, the, in the New Testament, the writings of the Apostle Paul, who has told us that we have been grafted in to the very root of Israel. We've been grafted in. But there's still Jews and there's still the church. There's two classes of people. 
all of them anticipated and planned in Scripture. Because I want you to consider what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32. Notice what he says. Give no offense, neither to the Jews. Notice how he distinctly separates these classes. Neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Got it? And there are other passages of Scripture that, you know, that you'll find that make that, that make that distinction clear. But he says, Give neither offense or none offense neither to the Jews nor to the Gentiles nor to the church of God. I think that's pretty clear. I don't think we need more than that one verse of Scripture to make it clear that we have those kinds of distinctions now as far as classes are concerned. So these are the three classes, as it were, that are mentioned in Scripture. And again, mentioned in Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't other nations. There are many nations. I mean, there are over hundreds of nations. A lot of languages that we have to deal with in the world today, you know. But again, there is still only these three classes of people as Scripture sees them. And as Scripture has brought them to us. The Jewish people, the nations or the Gentiles, and then... Out of the, see, here's the thing, out of the Jewish people and out of the Gentiles comes the church. As a matter of fact, the church, first and foremost, was Jewish. The first church was in Jerusalem. The first church was made up of Jewish people. You read the book of Acts, then the Gentiles come in, and now we're one. Set apart. Jews are still Jews. But they're believers in Jesus Christ. Those who are in the church. We were in the world. We didn't have the benefit of, of, of a Jewish heritage. So many of us didn't have a, the, the benefit of the heritage of a Jewish uh, reli- religious uh, spiritual ex- experience. We were just in the world. We may have had a religious experience in some form or other, but we came to Jesus. So what brings us together? The love of Christ. And we've become one. The Spirit of God has made us one in Christ, Jew and Gentile, one in Christ. So now there's those distinctions. If the passages of Scripture referring to each are rightly divided and not all jumbled together, as is the manner of some to do, then the reader should get the proper understanding of prophetic truth as it applies to each period of the Lord's dealing with men, the Jew, the Gentile, and the church. Now, there is also a truth that has been emphasized in the second, book of the, uh, in the second section of this book of Daniel regarding the great empires of the world in their rise, their progress, their decline, and their fall. The truth is this. It's found in Proverbs 14, verse 34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. This is the truth that has been emphasized in that section from chapter 2 all the way to chapter 8. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. This, good, this is good reason why that section was written in the language of the Gentiles of the time. 
a good reason for why it was written in, in Aramaic. It was for the Gentiles to understand that there is a God, and that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel. But now we have to occupy ourselves with that race that has been long been despised, long been hated down through the ages, but always watched over by, by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Lord God himself, and that is the people of Israel. We are going to be dealing with God's prophetic picture for Israel. No matter how great their, con, you know, their constant sin and failure, they have been beloved for their father's sake. The Jewish people have been beloved for their father's sake. And even though this last section of Daniel's book is written in Hebrew, we will still read of some of these world powers, two of which occupy this chapter. We, we talked about the, those two animals. We'll talk about them a little bit more, but they represent two nations. But this is only to prepare the way to better understand God's purposes and plans for the future of the Jewish nation, the Jewish people, and the state of Israel. So another thing that we will learn in our study of chapter 8 is that the books of Daniel and Revelation are structured very similarly. The books of Daniel and Revelation are structured very similarly. The first part of Revelation deals with the prophetic history of the church, doesn't it? Remember chapters 2 and 3, what were they? The, the letters of Jesus to the seven churches. Just as the first section of Daniel was written to and for the encouragement of Israel in their scattered sit, uh, situation. The large second section of Revelation from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 19, the large second section of, of Revelation concerns itself with the judgments that are to come upon the apostate church and the powers connected to it, as well as all the enemies of God's people, both the enemies of the Jews and the enemies of the uh, tribulation saints. And then from Revelation chapter 12 on, on the focus, uh, or, or from Revelation 12 on, the focus is on all that is connected with God's earthly people, and that is the nation of Israel in the land on the earth, before the coming of Jesus Christ. That is the very same topic that we will find in chapters 8 to 12 in the book of Daniel. So you see how hand in hand Daniel and Revelation go. You can't understand the book of Revelation without the book of Daniel, and you really can't understand the book of Daniel without getting back over to the book of Revelation to see how it all fits in. So that brings us now to this first eight verses of Daniel chapter 8, so that we can get ourselves focused on what this chapter is about. So in the third year, it says, of the reign of King Belshazzar, remember he's the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me, Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. And I saw in a vision, and it came to pass when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in a vision, and I was by the river of Ulai. Now, as a point of review, in chapter 7 we saw four beasts. 
that came upon the earth in Daniel's dreams and visions. These beasts, as I said earlier, represented four Gentile world powers, just as King Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream in chapter 2. They represented the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian or the Macedonian Empire, and the Roman Empire. Now, folks, did we, uh, at any time when we were studying history in our, in our schools, did we ever come across those kingdoms? We should have. If you don't say anything, yes or no, you, you were asleep in class, in history class. And you probably had the you know, history teacher come back and, you know, kind of wake you up a little bit. Yes, we saw those names there. They're, they're historical. These aren't made up. I have to tell you something. I'm, uh, has anybody ever read the Book of Mormon? A few of you have, or at least read through it. Yeah, I have. And, and you know, you read these stories about things happening on, on, on this continent over here, or, or in, the, in the, uh, the Western Hemisphere, you know, South America, Central America, Mexico, you know, and even in the United States. And, and they put all these names in, in the book, and nobody can find them. There, there are no archaeological places, you know. You go to Israel, every half block is an archaeological discovery. And, you're just, and then you get to go through it and see what's in the Scriptures. I'm, I'm just saying this to compare and to contrast how the Bible and history, I mean, and history and the Bible go hand in hand. It doesn't contradict history. So these are very important empires to understand in the course of not only the times and events that happen at Daniel's life, but more importantly, what's going to happen in Israel's life at the end when Christ will come. So the only difference is between Daniel's dreams and Nebuchadnezzar's dreams is that, again, Nebuchadnezzar saw these kingdoms through the eyes of man as they were featured in a huge, beautiful, glorious, multi metallic image but Daniel saw them through God's eyes and perspective as they really are vile and destructive beasts because nations can be destructive beasts can't they so it was also in Daniel chapter 7 that we saw a more detailed look at the last Gentile world power the last Gentile world power that's yet to come but it's going to come and is very soon going to be revealed but it would be what, what we call a revived Roman Empire of sorts. A revived Roman Empire of sorts. And I say that because over the course of our study of the book of Revelation and Daniel, I've had to make very clear message to you that, or give you a clear message that we're not dealing with a Western Roman Empire, but the Eastern part of the Roman Empire where all the nations live and exist that hate Israel. And are going to come against Israel. And surround Israel to this day. All the way from what we're going to see as Turkey. And we're going to look up here and, and see a map in just a moment. But Turkey is, it surrounds it. It goes all the way around you know, the Mediterranean and, and, and down you know, along that uh, fertile crescent. All the way over to Iraq and even Iran. And then all the way back around over to 
the southern part uh, or the northern part, I should say, of the African uh, continent, which is, of course, Egypt and Libya, uh, nations, of course, that now are, are fully uh, uh, Arabic, as it were, in, in, in many ways. So uh, th- this is the part of that Roman Empire that uh, is being focused upon. So out of that is going to come a leader that will emerge, who will attempt to exalt himself above, above the Most High God and speak pompous words against him. We call him the Antichrist. He's called the beast in the book of Revelation. So it will also be during the time of this kingdom and leader that the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, will return and pour out his righteous judgment against this man and all who have rejected Jesus. This was seen in Nebuchadnezzar's vision, the stone that came to the very feet of, of, that, of that statue, of that multi-metallic image. It is mentioned again later on in, in, in Daniel's vision as well. And we talked about the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. So, I mean, these are the fulfillment of, of this whole uh, idea that at the end... This is going to arise. We, we have seen the very essence of antichristism taking place. Even, the, even John, the apostle, wrote in his first letter that the spirit of antichrist is already here. He wrote that 2,000 years ago. It's, it's not only already here, but it's flourishing today. Anti-Christian rhetoric, anti-Christian attacks... Christians being beheaded today in, in various countries where ISIS or, or these Islamic terrorists are, 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 are having their way in certain places. Yes, they, I know they're also murdering their own people. They're murdering uh, other, other uh, Muslims. They're murdering Jews. They're, they're murdering Christians. Uh, I mean, this is, this is the end time, folks. What does it take for us not, you know, to get, open our eyes to see that? The thing about it is, all of you here have been coming to class and, and seeing it, you know. It's all the ones that are missing in all those other seats around us that aren't getting it. And they're more concerned about things on Facebook than they are about the coming of Jesus Christ. So it is going to be then that the Lord Jesus will set up His kingdom on the earth and rule from the throne of David in Jerusalem for a thousand years with His saints who come with Him. Now in seeing all of this, Daniel responded. I I, I want you to go to uh, just back a half a page there to to the last verse of chapter 7 because this is how Daniel responded to the vision that he got. Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations, which means my thoughts, much troubled me and my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. In other words, it troubled him what he saw in his dream, but he kept it in his heart. You see, this is kind of the way that we are to live our life today as believers. We see all of this stuff going on. It troubles us. It sometimes angers us. It makes us want to just, you know, go ballistic sometimes, right? Am I the only one? I'm glad to hear that. I thought maybe I'm going crazy here. You know. But I'm, honestly, I mean, we look at what's going on in this world, we think, man, Lord, what, come quickly, please. This is just, 
amazingly ridiculous. So oh, thank you. Thank you for being with me. Making me feel so much better. I'm not, I'm not alone, you know, here. The fact of the matter is we keep it in our hearts. Why? Because we know the end of the story. We know who's coming. And we're waiting for him. And he told us to be ready. And he told us to keep looking up and to lift up our heads because our redemption draws near. He's coming. Jesus is coming. We need to be ready. So keep the matter in your heart. But I mean, pray. Keep praying. And yes, keep paying attention to what's going on. Just be a little more cool than I am sometimes. You know, just kind of just relax, you know. Take it easy. Don't throw things at your TV. Uh, you know, when people say things, people who are supposed to be leaders in our own country saying things that are really stupid. I'm sorry, but that's what they're doing. Saying stupid things. Because they, they, you know, they got to walk on eggshells nowadays. No, no, no. We got to stand on the truth of God's word. We're not walking on eggshells. We're walking on the word of God. We can, we can, we can stand strong when we do that. So now, as we enter into chapter eight, Daniel gives us the time in which the vision was given to him. The vision of Daniel, chapter seven, occurred in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, which was 553 B.C. That would place this vision being. Uh, 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 beginning two years later at 551, some 12 years before the fall of Babylon to the Medo-Persian army in 539. So 12 years in, in, uh, in Babylon and Belshazzar's, uh, Bel- Belshazzar's reign, I should say, the Medo-Persian army will come in 539 and take over, destroy the Babylonian kingdom as as it were. So in his vision, Daniel saw himself in the palace of Shushan. Have you, you all ever seen that name Shushan before? It's mentioned in verse 2. Some of you said yes. How many of you have read the book of Esther? How many of you have read the book of Nehemiah? Okay, I'm thankful for the honesty of some of you. Would you please read those books? Read them so the next time I ask, you'll be going to go like this. All right. Two very important books. Because they take place in Shushan. Where is Shushan? It was one of the Persian royal cities. More than 200 miles east of Babylon by the river Ulai, as mentioned in our text. Verse 2, which was actually a large canal, the, the river Ulai was actually a large canal that was 900 feet wide that flowed close to Shushan on the northeast side of this, of, of, of this, of this town, uh, or this, actually this royal city of the Persians. Now I'm going to keep talking about the Persians a little bit. I'm going to emphasize that. Why? Because of where it is today. So keep that in mind. About a hundred years later, in other words, later than Daniel, a hundred years after Daniel, the Persian king Xerxes, or Xerxes, would build a magnificent palace there, which was where the events recorded in the book of Esther 
took place. It was also the palace where Nehemiah was the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes. So all of you have read those two books. You know who I'm talking about. This, of course, was all future to Daniel. But he labels the place. He called it Shushan. Not in this verse here, but it will in a moment. Verse 2. I saw a vision, it came to pass when I saw that it was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam. The province of Elam. You see the word Elam in the scripture, you should know one thing. That is present day Iran. I-R-A-N. The ones that we have today have made some kind of agreement, which not everybody knows fully about, but some agreement with them that they are, to, are going to hold off on, on, uh, on building nuclear weapons and only use nuclear power for good reasons, where all along everybody else knows that they want to build the bomb, uh, a nuclear bomb. For what reason? To destroy Israel. That's today. Same place, same people. Not this verse, but, you know, I have to keep saying that, don't I? Well, let's read on. Verse 3. Then I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river, that's the river Ulai, a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward so that no beast might stand before him. And neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. Did whatever he wanted to do. That's the idea. He went wherever he wanted to go. He did whatever he wanted to do. He was going to destroy and take over all the world. That was the whole purpose of this particular nation that's being mentioned here. So in his vision, as Daniel stood by the river Ulai, he saw this ram, and on the head of this ram were two horns, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Well, we are told, just go down to verse 20, because verse 20 of this chapter, chapter 8, tells us who it is. The ram which thou sawest, having two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia. Medea and Persia we pronounce it properly, the kings of Media or Medea and Persia. Now, so what's the deal with the high horn coming last? What does that mean? Well, history tells us that Medea rose up to power first. The Medeans were the first ones, you know, to have the power army, as it were. But then came the Persians. They, they kind of joined together. The Persians were the larger and the stronger group, and so they eventually overshadowed the, overshadowed the Medeans, historically. In fact, this kingdom, as I said, is commonly referred to not as the Medo-Persian Empire. Really, most of the time when you hear about it, they're referred to as the Persian Empire. 
because they were the stronger of the two. Even though they were a united kingdom. It is also interesting to note that the symbol of the ram is found on the coins of this empire. When they've excavated uh, uh, archaeological sites in, in the area of Persia or Iran, they have found coins with rams on them. And then get this, to top it all off, to top all that information off, the Persian king, as he stood before his army, did not wear a king's crown, but he placed the head of a ram upon his head. That's what you learn about history. You know, they, they find all of these things in, the, in their writings, and then they, you know, they figure out the language, and then they say, hey, this is interesting. The king didn't have a crown. He had a, 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 a ram's head on his head, you know. It must have been from St. Louis, you know, the St. Louis Rams. Maybe he played football. No, I don't know. Trying to see if you're still awake with me. So now, speaking historically, and as Daniel has recorded, the Medo-Persians moved westward towards, now listen to this, towards Lydia, Ionia, Thrace, and Macedon. All of that, as you'll see in just a moment, all of that is in what is modern-day Turkey. And then they move northward towards the Caspian Sea and the Oxus Valley, all the way up to the Aral Sea, north of the land there. In areas that are uh, nations that were at one time swept up by the Soviet, uh, uh, you know, the USSR, after the breakup and became Confederate States, uh, you've got Uzbekistan and and Kurdistan and all the stands, all the names, you know, with the end and stand, which are almost all, if not all of them, uh, Muslim countries. And then they move southward with their massive army towards Babylon and later towards Egypt. So let's look at the map. And let me point out a couple of things here. Let's see where my pointer is. Here it is. So... All this area here, when I said Macedonia and Thrace, now that's Greece over here. But all from here, all around this whole area, this is the Medo-Persian Empire. And Thrace and Lydia, Byzantium, Cappadocia, Sardis, Tarsus, those are, those are New Testament names. We find, uh, you know, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Paul was from Tarsus. All of this area, this was is now Turkey. All of this is Turkey. All right, so you have that. Now here's, here's Susa or Shushan. Notice where it is, near, near Babylonia, because they took over for, uh, you know, they destroyed the Babylonian kingdom. And uh, so here, here's Susa or Shushan. There's Shushan, the name. Here is the Persian Gulf. One of these little rivers here, or, you know, these blue lines right here. This is, this is actually the... Um, it, it should be uh, the Ulai River. But look at the Persian Gulf. And then here it comes down south. So they went west. They went north. Here's the Caspian and the Aral Sea right there. And they, t- they t- took all of these here, these, uh, all these little areas. 
uh, and then uh, they went to Egypt and Libya. So all of this here is what they, uh, what they captured as, as the Medo-Persian Empire. You'll notice that they did not move eastward towards India and China, just as the scriptures tell us. We don't know why, but God knows why. We won't worry about that. But one of the repeating thoughts in this book of Daniel, one of the repeating thoughts is that of pride. Pride. Here we see them moving as they please. Isn't that what it said? That they went, he did whatever he wanted to do, wherever he wanted to go. Pride. Conquering nations. All the while setting themselves up for a fall. So you see, you can either be broken of your pride or you will be broken by your pride. That's the spiritual lesson we need to take with us today. You can be either broken of your pride or you can be broken by your pride. And the choice is ours. Well, individuals as well as nations will be held accountable on this most crucial issue of pride. Listen to what it says in Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Our text tells us very quickly that uh, they went forth. Uh, this, this, you know, the, this, this nation that came from the West. Uh, and uh, well, I should say uh, the, the Medo-Persian Empire, because that was already designed for us or, uh, or, or defined for us in, in verse 20. Uh, but they went, they went westward, northward, eastward. They got all of this land, and and uh, you know, so it was all a matter of, of pride, the pride of of these uh, uh, Persian kings. But uh, they would be actually destroyed by a greater army. So the principal theaters of the Medo-Persian wars were against the Scythians in the north, the Greeks and the Macedonians in the west, and the Egyptians and Libyans in the south. But there's a new development in Daniel's vision. And let's look at that, verses 5 through 8. This is the new development here. And, I, and as I was considering, behold, in other words, he's looking at this ram with the two horns, one bigger than the other, and, and going about doing all of this capture in here, as it were. He says that this he-goat, or male goat, came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground. In other words, it came fast and, and furious, as it were. <laughs> Off the ground, and flying, you know, with the whole idea is rapidity. I mean, just coming quickly. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing before the river and ran in, into him or unto him in the fury of his power. I mean, he came, I mean, he, he, these were not nations that liked each other. They would want to try to destroy each other. That was the whole idea here. And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler. As I said, choler means uh, a bitter, infuriating rage uh, against him, and smote the ram, and brake his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him, but he cast him to the ground, and he stamped upon him. I mean, he really just wanted to destroy, you know, this, this kingdom. And, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore, the he-goat waxed very great. In other words, he became great. And when he was strong, 
Now keep this in mind. We're talking about the king of this nation. When he was strong, the great horn was broken. And for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. So, a little over 200 years after the Medo-Persian Empire came into power, we see their fall. And at one time they did as they pleased and no one was able to stand against them. No one could get in their way. In a word, they were invincible. But now we see a male goat come with great speed from the west and trample all those who got in his way. And as this male goat came up against the ram with the two horns, we see him crush them and break their horns. And thus power was taken away. So who is this empire? Who is this male goat? Verse 21 will tell us. But look, let's compare. Verses 20 and 21. The ram which, was, which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Medea and Persia. Who takes over after them? The rough goat. By the way, that, that means the shaggy goat. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece. Or Grecia or Grecia. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The first king. Hmm. Verse 21 reveals that the shaggy goat was none other than the king of Macedon, who was Philip, and the large horn between his eyes was Philip's son, Alexander the Great. Not the grape, the great. This male goat came from the west and had conquered the, the, the entire Near and Middle East within three years' time. So when you read of this male goat moving across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, that gives the perfect illustration of the quickness and incredible ability of this man and his army. In fact, his military strategies are, be, are still being studied today to glean any insight into the military genius of this man. Now let me clear up a couple of quick things. You might say, why is it that Daniel received this vision in chapter 8 and there's no mention of Babylon? Remember now that... He receives the vision during the time of Belshazzar who is going to actually lose the kingdom for Babylon. So they're out of the picture already. Now these two nations, the Medo-Persian Empire and the Grecian nation, of course, uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about it next week because of time. But, uh, but they're, 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 playing a, uh, they're playing a major role today. And again, we're going to talk about that next time. But I want you to just think about this for a moment. I know that it talks about the first king being the, the, the horn that was broken off. That would be the first king of what we would call, uh, you know, the first king after, after Philip. You know, Philip was the one who established the army that, that uh, he sent his son to go uh, lead. And, and he led with such uh, uh, power and, 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 uh, and, and quickness that that he actually would become the first king, really, of the whole nation that was finally now the nation or, or the, the world empire. So that's, that's why Alexander is considered the first king here. But just think, for this, uh, just think for the, uh, about this for just a moment. At the age of 21, being called one of the most brilliant and most powerful men of all time, that was Alexander. But as successful as he was, by the age of 32, he became depressed and he wept, for there were no more kingdoms to conquer. We learned that in history books, if you weren't asleep during history lessons. 
We learned about that. He became later an alcoholic and he got drunk one night. He got soaked in the rainstorm. And as he got out of bed, not having changed his wet clothing, he caught pneumonia. And that was complicated by a bout that he was having with malaria, not to mention his alcoholism. And he died, as I said, at the age of 32 in the city of Babylon in 323 B.C., a city that he had captured. You see, this man owned the world and it wasn't enough. He owned the world and it wasn't enough. Listen, it will never be enough. It will never be enough. Without the Lord in a person's life, they will never be satisfied with things. But a person can have absolutely nothing, yet have the Lord, and they are rich, in need of nothing, and completely satisfied. Don't you believe that? You do? Good. That's a good thing. Because if you have Jesus Christ in your life, you have everything that you will need, both in this life and in the life to come. I want you to consider something that Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. He said, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus, uh, uh, and of Jesus our Lord, I should say, uh, according as his divine power has given unto us. Notice what it says. According as his divine power has given unto us all things, all things, uh, that means there's nothing missing here, all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that has called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. The corruption that is in the world through lust. That is what we were talking about in Alexander's life. The corruption that is in the world through lust. Lust makes you want more and more and more and more and more. To want it just because you feel that you deserve it. But you see, for a believer, we know one thing. And that's what Paul tells us in Philippians 4.19. But my God, my God. Remember I told you not too long ago that uh, the Pope had given a message uh, where he said that uh, it is dangerous for uh, quote-unquote people to say that they, they have a personal God. It's a dangerous thing to say you have a personal God. Well, Paul should have gotten that memo because he says, but my God. That's pretty personal, don't you think? But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. My God. Yes, he's a personal God. And he knows every need that every one of us has. And he's met those needs, by the way. And he meets them on a daily basis. Because you see, our, our faith and our trust is not in any person. Our faith and trust is in God himself. Our faith and trust is in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Our faith is in, and, and our trust is in the Spirit of God who we have with us because the Lord said, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Listen, folks, trust the word of God. Trust the word of God. Pride kills. Pride destroys. But humility brings God's hand to lift us up.
Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. And he will provide everything that you need for life and for godliness through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. So we'll begin our study next time with the four notable horns, the the ones that take over after Alexander, because now we're getting into the the nitty-gritty of this chapter, and we'll do that next time. As we really will try to finish chapter 8 next time. Because we're going to spend a lot of time in chapter 9. I can tell you that right now. I'm not going to hold that back. Chapter 9 is an incredibly serious and and necessary chapter for us to understand line by line, precept upon precept, and and it's going to take us a good while, but it's, 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 you're going to be amazed at what we learn in chapter 9 about what's taking place today. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege that you have given us today to be in your, in your house, in a place where we can worship you and praise you, and also Lord, in a place where we can just rejoice in in the knowledge of what Christ Jesus has done for us. And we turn our hearts and our eyes, Lord God, to you today. And we ask you, Lord, just to bless us and and, uh, fill us, Lord, with your spirit tonight as we go home and meditate upon these things. Lord, I pray that you will speak to our hearts, that you will make yourself known to us, especially to those who need you right now, and encourage their hearts, Lord that they're not alone, that they are especially uh, considered by you and that you, Lord, are with them to surround them, to strengthen them, to grant them, Lord God, their most important needs because you're the one that provides all of them. You're the source of our life. You're the source of everything that we need in this life. So we thank you for that today. In Jesus' name, amen.